Hi, this is Robert Shear with another edition of Shear Intelligence, where the intelligence comes from my guests and also uh, experience. In this case, experience with war, and I'm timing this to our celebration of the 4th of July uh, when most people are not thinking about war. In fact, war is now for many Americans nothing more than a video game. We don't have a draft, we have uh, a professional army. Uh, with great destructive power, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the casualties, the death are mostly others. And I um, want to raise this subject with two people of vast experience, uh, quite a bit apart in age. And one is Oliver Stone, who's written a new book called Chasing the Light, about his life until the age 40. Uh, and it's the subtitle is Writing, Directing, and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the movie game. And the movie game is something that Oliver did a lot to change, and he got the movie industry to deal with war, not as a great action video in which nobody you care about dies, but reality. And Platoon uh, saw Oliver get the Academy Award, one of the three he's won. Uh, he, uh, for his accounting of his own experience in Vietnam where he was wounded and was part of a trilogy. Uh, the other guest is Danny Shorson, uh, who's 36 years old, uh, Major Danny Shorson, and he spent the last 18 years uh, as an active duty soldier. He went to West Point. He also has taught at West Point. He's quite a historian and writer and is uh, publishing now his second book on patriotism called Patriotic Descent. He's got a work of history coming out, and he's written a book called Ghost Riders of Baghdad about the surge of Baghdad, and he's been fighting America's wars and forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we have two soldier scholars of uh, different generations, and basically have emerged as two of the main people willing to challenge a certain notion of mindless patriotism, unquestioned patriotism. And I'm going to turn this discussion over to them. Uh, so, Danny, take it away. You know, I watched every war movie ever, right, and every Western, but uh, I did watch all of uh, Oliver Stone's uh, movies, or most of them, especially Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. So, uh, Oliver, uh, you did not stop me from signing up and going to West Point, so I, I think I should hold you directly responsible for that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously I'm fooling around. I was young and had a very different view of what I was looking for in those movies. But uh, so, uh, Oliver, if you're okay with it, I mean, I'm going to kind of touch on what Bob brought up and just give a little bit of concept and scope um, before we jump into the first questions. And, you know, we had an opportunity to talk briefly last week. But overall, uh, what I'd like to do, you know, with your permission, and we'll see where it goes, is three things, you know, in the concept and scope, which is first to cover some, you know, aspects, themes, and vignettes in the book, specifically the ones that struck me, and it, and it really is an excellent book, uh, I say that quite honestly, two, to sort of tie in the film work you describe, your screenwriting, and just described life experiences uh, with your sort of political and social evolution and its connections to the seemingly pivotal present. And then finally, 
tie some of this in with my own experience uh, without over-personalizing and, and that of my generation of veterans and just Americans in general, comparing and kind of contrasting with your own, call it intergenerational combat and post-combat experience, uh, wherein the, you know, the book that Bob mentioned that I wrote, which has really informed much of my work, and I, th I think, dare I say, much of yours, you know, the emphasis on the cultural depictions of and sort of the personal and popular conceptions of patriotism in all its complexity and, of course, all too often paltry patriotism, uh, dare, to, dare I say. So throughout, of course, we can be flexible and go places you want to, uh, wherever you want to emphasize, and then build on what's organic uh, or piques our joint interest. How does that sound? Sounds ambitious for an hour. I don't <laughs> do it. But well, we'll... Uh, <laughs> I should have mentioned that you were, were an instructor at West Point in addition to having been a student. So you have the habits of scholarship uh, and so take it from there. But you've also been an activist, I should have mentioned. And just a few days ago, you were one of the people that Donald Trump condemned uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma for being so threatening when you tried to change the American flag. So uh, uh, you might discuss that also in this context. You mentioned you by name, man. Uh, no, no, no. I was just one of the one of the many. I think he said low lives was how he described us, uh, which I was actually proud to be. Uh, if he said it, uh, no, I was just part of a direct action with a group of anti-war vets working with some uh, black and indigenous Oklahomans. So, yeah, we just got tossed out and a few folks got arrested, but uh, just kind of part of the movement, you know, in the broad sense. Oh. Uh, did you ever see my, uh, the movie I made called Nixon? Oh, yes. Yeah, and I know that uh, Bob and Chris were involved yeah. uh, as Bob, well. Bob and Chris were involved. But just because Nixon used the same terminology to describe the protesters and called them bums and lowlifes, and uh, it, it, we had a scene in the film like that. So it's it interesting no that... tradition of attacking the protesters. Yeah, absolutely. And even as, you know, as I was reading your work and, and just history in general, it seems that there's, there's always a connection between the foreign enemy and the domestic enemy. So if you're anti-Vietnam War, you're a communist, or if you're a black nationalist, you're a communist, and then, and then you're a terrorist. And so now we're Antifa or domestic terrorists, or just like Nixon would say, and now Trump, you know, low lives or bums or folks who don't have a job. Uh, this, this, this theme is obviously threading throughout, but, uh, so let me, let me start with this. If, if you don't mind, uh, Bob mentioned that I, you know, I'd followed your work previously and that we, you know, both volunteered, uh, albeit, you know, I was on the officer side, which I thought you pretty accurately described as only tangentially in your world, uh, in many ways when you were a foot soldier, uh, you know, enlisted at the uh, lower end of the platoon. But I first watched Platoon uh, with an uncle who no longer speaks to me, uh, based on politics, former cop and fireman, uh, when we lived together in Staten Island in 1989. So I was six. Uh, I was born just a year uh, before your son, Sean, I believe. At the time, uh, it was a war movie to me, obviously. And then even the first four or five times after that that I watched it, it was more about the action. And I did enjoy some of the character development, but I saw what I wanted to see in many ways. So it was the, the combat scenes and the gore and, you know, the, just that aspect of it, which tends to dominate in most other 
folks's uh, Vietnam War films, but not yours. Uh, other connections vaguely, or, you know, I was a New Yorker too, but of course in class and experience and culture, you know, I was probably vaguely wedged between yourself and Ron Kovic, who I've gotten to know and speak uh, on the stage with. Uh, and I was also a volunteer for war who probably had other opportunities and expectations, but of course was an officer, although choosing, you know, the light cav and all that, even when I could have been Intel. So like you choosing the infantry, um, but I think the key concept here is that my experiences in self-education, which really is throughout this book uh, for you, seem to gradually and then quickly and then gradually uh, lead to a path of descent, sure, but also a public and personal sort of disavowal of conventional patriotism and masculinity. So, you know, in the end, Platoon stayed with me. And when I came back to it, it remained sort of a touchstone in my life. And then, of course, I broadened to your other work in later years, it kind of spoke to me differently at different points. Uh, at all different points of experience in my life, it meant something different, as has your work on Latin America, which I'll bring up, the Ukraine, and then the whole Untold History series. And of course, uh, recently I fell back in love with Salvador. So I have plenty of more linear and standard sequential questions, but you know, forgive my amateur narrative arc tool, but I like to kind of come in sort of strong and deep in the story to start. But toward the end of the book, you said, uh, you know, at the height of your success and the buzz around Platoon, um, you discussed kind of your complicated feelings about that popular rise and its connections between your public and private life. So soon after describing this dream in which your father appeared to you, uh, you said it, you know, gave you chills and guilt. And you wrote that, quote, inside me was the demon waiting to go back out to sea, hating this hoopla of meeting people, selling them, justifying myself. And uh, it really jumped out at me. So, and it almost reminded me of Kerouac describing Dean Moriarty and On the Road, the only people for me are the mad ones. So my first question, Oliver, is would you say that this demon self, this outsider or misunderstood feeling or yearning for the sea or the jungle, did it reflect in your films and your own life? And has it been a net positive uh, in your work or relationships in general? Yeah, I think that's a very deep question. Uh, it is a net positive. Uh, and as you can see throughout the life has been the taking of risks. Uh, very important. And I didn't see it until I wrote the book that there was a pattern of risk taking. As for example, uh, my parents were divorced and that was the end of my family life. That was at the age of 16. That was just over. There was a th we were a tightly knit three person family which ended in acrimony. So I was on my own, in, in, in a sense, like an orphan. And I went to Vietnam for the first time as a teacher and as a merchant sailor and traveler and so forth. And my eyes were open to the East in a way that never happened before. I, w I went more from a Western way of thinking into slight beginning to introduce myself to an Eastern way of thinking. After that, as you know, I wrote a book about my feelings. For the first time in my life, I dealt with my feelings. I was about 19. The book was, uh, was rejected. And in pain, I left college a second time and went into the military. I wanted to go to the bottom. I wasn't interested. As I wasn't so much. Of course, I was a patriot because I never thought about it. My father was always a Republican. And I was inducted with those values. And I'd seen all the movies you probably had seen and believed it very much like Ron Kovic. But not really in my demon was my demon was inside me was asking for punishment i suppose for having been so 
narcissistic as to write a book and wanting to be judged in a, in a realistic outside myself way, going into the army, going to the bottom of the barrel. And I said this in platoon, the bottom couldn't be lower than what a private PFC in the jungle is. And I wanted to go right to Vietnam. I wanted to go right to combat. I didn't want to fuck around. I wanted to get through uh, training as quickly as possible and go over there. And if I was going to be killed, so be it. That was, that would be the right, that would be the, I was ready for it, you know? So that was my state of mind. When I, and of course, as you may know, when you're in combat, when you're in a jungle infantry outfit, you learn very quickly that it's a brutal existence in a jungle and you're always kind of worn out and tired and sleepless. And, and it was wet too. It was, the, it was the monsoon season, mosquitoes, all that stuff and constant small firefights. And uh, I got wounded uh, twice pretty quickly in the first three months. And uh, it wakes you up, you know, but I can't say, and then I went on to do, I was in four different combat units. Each one had one pattern that remained the same. There was a civil war, a split in the units. There was like a blue element and a red element. There was a, a, a rebel element and a, a law and order element. And I, I saw that everywhere in, in Vietnam. We can talk about that in more length. Officers class two, this, but above all, the master sergeant class were my nemesis. Uh, the, ma the master sergeants were running the military. I ended up in uh, the 1st Cavalry Division up north, and I got the Bronze Star in a combat action and so forth. I also saw a significant human wave attack on the night of January 1, 68, when I was in the 25th Infantry, which I write about in the most strangest way, because you'd think in a human wave attack, you'd deal with the enemy. I never saw the enemy that whole night, and it was an interesting ghostly experience for me. But I did see the enemy in many other encounters, uh, uh, generally pretty close. <laughs> uh, I don't want to. I'm going to get. I don't want to get sidetracked. Uh, I came out of Vietnam alienated, and, and unlike Ron Kovic, I did not protest. I did. I thought both sides were full of shit. I thought Nixon was full of shit. I thought he's going to just continue this thing, and he did. And, you know, actually, I was thinking about wanting to, uh, you know, do violence, uh, you know, get rid of Nixon. I was pretty out there. It took me a year to get back into a civilian mindset. A woman helped me, and I went back to film school after about a year. And film school brought me back into civilization in one sense of the word. Films helped me a lot in my life. As you know, I had a rough time. I wrote Midnight Express, but also wrote Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Both films were rejected over and over again. It was a humiliating 10 years in their 76, 78 period. They, were, they would make Rambeau films, but they would not make Platoon. They would make, not make Born on the Fourth of July. It was heartbreaking to go through this. And I talk about that in the book and how close it came to Born on the Fourth of July being made and so forth. Uh, Bob knows that story. Uh, it was heartbreaking, but risk-taking is where I started. So that's the theme. And I think the biggest risk uh, after the Vietnam experience and going out into a business, I had no training for, I mean, no, I had no proven ability as a writer, but I believed in myself and I was rejected time and again, taking the risk of just having nothing in my life. At the age of 30, I come to a 
place where it's a, a fork in the road and I say, I can't, and my grandmother dies and I make a big thing out of my grandmother because it ties into the concept of family and what she, she's French and the heritage I came from, which is a split heritage, my mom being French, my father American. So what happened is after 30, I had some success with Midnight Express. And it's a, it's a great story what happened, but the truth was I also had a great deal of failure still. And after I went, kind of got thrown back down by the fate of one of my films, The Hand, which I liked, I ended up at the age of 39, which is along now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting along in my life. How old are you now? You're, you're, I'm 36. 36. Well, it's interesting. I'm sort of closer to the point you end the book. I think you know the kind of risk I took at 39. 39, I took the limited amount of money I had. I said, I'm going to make this crazy movie with this crazy Irish journalist I love, Richard Boyle, about Salvador, the Salvadoran Civil War of 1980. I went for it whole hog. And I was so crazy and so desperate that I wanted to make it for as little as three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, whatever it took. And Richard and I went down to Salvador because he had contacts there. And his his plan, Richard's crazy plan, was to con the Salvadoran military at the highest level into supporting our plan and giving us the choppers, the helicopters we needed to make the uh, the, the Salvadoran military look great in wiping out the rebel element in Salvador, the FMLN at that point. It was amazing that we thought like this. We thought we could get away with it. And then we thought after that, they'll give us everything we need for 50 grand, 100 grand. We'll make, and then we'll move up to Mexico and we'll shoot the, the rebel side of the, of the thing in Mexico. It's a, it, didn't, it was destined to be a disaster that way. But I was willing to sink my last dollar, my mortgage, everything I had into this movie. And thank God I, it would have been a disaster from beginning to end. There was no way. Plus, Richard Boyle was going to act in the movie. You understand how that's a riff. At the age of, to wipe yourself out, I had a new family. I had my mother to support. I had a, a, new, a new boy. I was married. Oh, uh, and I, I just wanted, I, you know, that's how desperate you are to make a movie. And you'll cut any corner. You'll, you'll sell your mother, they say. I don't know that I would have, but basically anything to make this movie. So that's also what the book is about. It's about making a movie at any cost, make your dream happen. And I was very, very lucky to have an Englishman come in and finance the film, John Daly. John Daly of Hem Daly is a hero in this book and uh, a buccaneer, a real Captain Blood type. I'm going back to your theme about being the wild man going back out into the world. And then I had the huge, huge amount of success with, I mean, unbelievable. The whole world flipped with the platoon and Salvador was belatedly recognized. And my career after 40 went to another place into the stratosphere. However, in me was the demon still. And I say that throughout the book, you can see there's a mother side and a father side. My, I say my father's side is rational. Uh, he was the writer. The, the, the director was my mother. She was the outgoing type. She loved people. And, and a director has to do that. A writer works alone. A director works in a larger sphere. So I combined those two elements. And I, at one point in the book, I think you saw that I said I became double-minded. I realized I was double-minded. Double-minded is an expression from Homer about... Uh, Odysseus, Odysseus and his travels are double-minded. It, it means consciousness, to have a consciousness that is 
beyond what you started with. And in that consciousness is always this desire to, to get away from who you are, to be the double. In other words, I'm here. I have a, a family. I have a life. I'm rational. I have income. I have to pay taxes. But there's another side of me that wants to be out there in the world like a young buccaneer with his pirate ship undergoing all kinds of adventures, experiencing the world again. That was in my, even at 40, I had that feeling. That's what drove me on Salvador. So I'm talking about a different spirit. You call it the demon. Maybe it's not the right word. Maybe it should be the wild man. It's uh, it just was really interesting throughout the book, picking up on that, on that aspect of, you know, you were described at one point as the demon or as this like yearning to be out there or take the risks. And uh, I can't help but wonder, perhaps it seems obvious, but, you know, that must have set you apart when you first walked into the Hollywood world. I mean, I cannot imagine that very many folks your age uh, in that business were Vietnam veterans or had experienced what you did even in the kind of merchant marine and, you know, teaching and not writing the novel before and some of you know, what came after with some of your radical feelings and pent up violence, was it, you know, was it difficult to break into that core? And now as you've done more and more controversial things and the polite liberals don't necessarily uh, buy into all of it, has, how has that kind of changed and stayed with you throughout your career in that world? Oh man, that's, you're going into another whole field. I mean, my feelings are very ambivalent. I I I don't know that I can answer the question in in full because it's you're asking about a whole subset of people. Uh, Hollywood is filled with enormous talent, very creative people. Some of them uh, uh, unbelievable, far more talented, more creative, better writers than I am. And everyone has their own view of the world based on their subjectivity, Uh, and. It's true. Many of these people have not experienced war. Most of them have not. So they don't know. So when they call themselves liberal and they, and they say, we got to go beat up uh, Venezuela or we got to go beat up Iran. It's incredible to me how stupid they are and short-sighted. And even Joe Biden, as much as we, many people appreciate his running against a a man they're fearful of, Joe Biden talks like, a hawk, even an uber hawk. He want, he's to the right of Mr. Trump when he talks about Russia or he talks about China, or even China and, talk, and Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. Oh, yeah, North Korea. Let's not forget that. So it's another world. And that, it, that, it's evident in Hollywood that that's going on. And that's, I don't belong here. And I never felt like I was an insider. I always, believe it or not, even with three Oscars, I never felt one of them, and I've always kind of had an outsider status, I suppose, which is okay with me because, as you know, I'm a writer too, and I I can live in my head. I don't have to have the necessary approval of of this bourgeois audience, of this bourgeois class that I'm in. It's just the way it is. I long ago realized that I was one of those people like uh, who was going to be a pirate in his life. And I, frankly, my, I can't complain. I don't have the same energy as I did when I was younger, but I have to live with myself. And that's one of the good things about writing this book, by the way. I, mean, I just got a hard copy today. Oh, wow. Great. Can you believe it? 
Yeah, just today. Uh, first, first cover. Uh, I love, I love that uh, cover choice. A real book, Bob. Like you know what I'm talking about. A book. It's a great feeling. It's uh, the best feeling. You know it too. Uh, so anyway, uh, and I'm on the cover. Can you believe it? They chose that. Uh, yeah, you're the guy on that cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I was better yeah. looking. No, come on, uh, Danny. That registers with you, doesn't it? Actually, it's not too it, much it difference. Does. It's about fifty years, right? Fifty years. Yeah, about fifty years ago. How, what do you think? Fifty that, years later, not bad. Yeah, okay, not bad at all. Uh, no, I mean that that it, that does resonate with me. I mean, seeing you on the cover, and I think as I got older and started to get more complicated views of war through education, but then of course, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I think one of the things about platoon that was i don't know just so different beyond just the artistic aspects and of course the mythology and the christology and the other symbolism that really is apparent not only in that but throughout your memoir here and then also some of your other films but that you had been there and that there was an experiential analogy some of it quite literal from what i read because uh i found that a lot more about platoon was you know true in the in the literal sense uh, than I had even thought. So it, it, it's been a powerful aspect of that and raises a bunch of questions which are interesting to me about where we are now because something profound has changed and it's the elimination of the draft. I mean, one of the great cynical Nixon moves and, you know, I've read a lot of the declassified documents surrounding it, but, you know, there was this time I remember you mentioning in the book that after Platoon's success, you went to the Harvard Club, I believe, and uh, had like an interesting and, you know, very complicated uh, experience there, interesting questions from the crowd. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself how, you know, only 30 less Harvard graduates died in World War II than West Point graduates. And I mentioned that a lot in some of my talks. And then, of course, n no Harvard graduates right, have been getting killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the actual stats for the Ivy League are incredibly low. And so I can't help but wonder if even your own decision, uh, complicated as it was, unique to you as it was to, you know, leave Yale and, and volunteer for all kinds of reasons, not solely political by any means, that sense of duty or that sense of ex experiencing the real, right, not having to fake it as you say in platoon and uh, be a fake person i mean has that ideal is it lost is that is that a lost ideal with the elites now completely really opting out of service and you know do you have any general thoughts about mm. how getting rid of the draft has changed warfare for americans you know, we're jumping around to big conclusions about right. you see that you have to realize the book ends in 1986 i had come to a certain place in 1986 uh, and a lot of the things that I've developed into, evolved into, came later. But the very key, key paragraph here in the platoon experience is at the very end, before I get the, uh, the Oscar for platoon, I talk about, uh, on, I say, so I come to this moment in time, success was a beautiful goddess, yes. But I was being seduced by this vindication, this proving myself to my father. Was it the acceptance? power? What did I really believe? I'd made it a moral issue that America was truly wounding itself in Vietnam with our struggle between pro-war, anti-war, right-left, Barnes Alliance. 
But was I avoiding the larger moral issue of the wholesale slaughter of three to four million Vietnamese people and all that implied? What had really happened to America? It was no longer just about Salvador or Vietnam. My mind was still scared of this confrontation. It was a mind that would have to evolve further, assume greater risks, one baby step at a time. You are 36 years old and you are where uh, further advanced along that scale than I was. I was still scared. Ron Kovic was much more radical, but on the other hand, I thought he had missed something that uh, I, I, of course, I came from a very conservative background. So it took me, like you perhaps, it took me some real, some real nail pulling to, to, to come over to understand the world in a large, and I kept growing. That's the whole point. You can't be at 19, at 40 years old, you can't be who you are when you grow, as you grow. I just grew a little late. You know, what I, when I went to Vietnam, Pauline, one of these critics said, you know, what, this guy is an idiot. He, what does he believe? Everything he hears? Didn't he read Mad Magazine? That's what she said about uh, Ron Kovic. Well, Ron Kovic never read Mad Magazine. And even if he had, and I had, it didn't change it. This was a real situation. This was real. We thought it was a war. I really thought they were communists, and I thought they were threatening the United States. I did. Maybe I was stupid. I was 19, 21. So uh, I wanted to be authentic. That was the bigger issue. And I wanted to go to the bottom. I had to see the bottom to know. And I think that's an experience that young people still have. They may not do it the same way, but some people want to go out into the jungles of Bolivia or whatever and work on, on some NGO or nonprofit or be a medical person or just be on the front lines. This is important. I think that's still there in the environment. I think they, there's no sea anymore. You can't go to sea as a merchant sailor, at least in the American merchant marine. But, you know, I think there's still a desire to experience it. By going to the bottom, you get very important view of the world, how bad it is for people and how tough it is and how ugly it can get. Ugly. And whatever they say about the bullshit, I mean, I hear many officers talk about the spirit of the men and all that. No. What happens in combat is much gruesome and people uh, can be really ugly and they can also be noble too at times. So I, you know, I didn't have any illusions after I came out of that. And I tried to put that real violence into the movies. And of course I paid a price for it. Could never get around that. I mean, people don't understand it. I hate violence. And the violence in the movies is heartfelt. The only movie I ever did that was not, that was a joke in terms of violence was on purpose was Natural Born Killers because it was satiric. But everything else, Salvador, Platoon, Born the Fourth, Heaven and Earth, was based on hating violence and just showing it. And what people forget is that violence is underplayed. It's overplayed or underplayed. They, people don't understand in America because we have all these stupid cop shows. I, I take a stance against cop shows back in the seventies, which show bad guys are always getting caught. Good guys are catching them. The, the, the guns go off. No, you know, it's, it's ridiculous what they show because people get hurt when you get a, have a gun go off. So the real meaning of one bullet in Ron Kovic's movie going to his spine has a tremendous lifelong meaning. It goes, that bullet goes from here to eternity. Uh, and I wanted to drive that point home and I fought for it and it's been lost. Nobody gets it. I'd go to the press club and I national press club and I talk about it 
they look at you blank. They don't know what a bullet can do until it does it. And that's what's going on with this George Floyd business too, because, you know, it's, let's say the black people are much more aware of violence. They see it, they live with it. The police are on top of them. Well, I'll tell you the truth. The police scare the shit out of me too. I still have the rebel in me. I mean, when I'm driving around, you know, I've been arrested a few times, but uh, you know, it's horrible to get a bust. The cops talk to you. They took this guy in Atlanta. They talked to him for 30 minutes or something. And then it turned into a shooting. That's the way they do. You know, they talk to you until they unnerve you. They scare you. Uh, this is that these people live with it. They know what they're talking about. And I learned a lot about this when I went to Vietnam. I just want to, this is a side story. I talk about it in the book, how important black soldiers were to me. It's my first experience with black soldiers. I had no experience of it except here and there, but I was scared of them because that's what I was taught to be. It's their attitude, they were hostile. And in Vietnam, it was a whole different ballgame because everybody was tough in those, it was just a tough, mean existence in the platoon. We talk about officers later, but there was a group of black men in each of these platoons. And finally, towards the end of my tour, the last six months, I really started to mingle with them, smoke dope with them, listen to their music, talk to them, and go to their hooches when we were in the rear and were relaxing. And I tried to show some of that in platoon. I think it's important. But from those men, I learned to keep, to keep a hold of something inside myself that I was losing touch with. I was becoming tougher, more callous, much more callous. And uh, you see it in many troops over there. You saw it constant. There was not only racism, but there was just callousness to the Vietnamese, the indifference to killing civilians, to hurting people, to destroying their homes. It was evident. It was in the Agent Orange they dropped all over the jungles. It was the constant overflights, the bombings, the we're just blowing up people, you know, that attitude of wasting the place was prevalent and I was living in it every day. Huh. I, needed a re- I needed a release, I needed refuge from that. And in those hooches with those men, I found it. And I tried to pay homage to it. His best friends in the movie are, are black soldiers. And uh, of course, there were some black soldiers who were hated the white, who were just racist too. And they didn't want to deal with the white guys. I didn't know those, they, they avoided me, I avoided them. But, uh, and there were some rotten apples in both, you know, no matter what race you are, they're rotten apples. We know that. We don't have to talk about that. But anyway, that really makes, makes, that has a huge role to play in later developments of my life. Time for a break. And um, we'll be back in a few Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. We're back with Sheer Intelligence and our guest. Can I just ask you a question, both Danny and Oliver? At the core of this and this notion of patriotism 
that Danny challenges in his book is a notion of American innocence, virtue, and a contempt really for the other. You know, when you went to Vietnam or earlier, we were 6% of the world's population. Now we're about 4%. We've, we've been, had a tremendous footprint on the world. When you did it, it was in the name of stopping an enemy communism, which we didn't understand. It was gibberish and it was cynical. Danny has been fighting this enemy of terrorism. Terrorism. But he still has to go into those villages. They look different. They're arid and so forth. So, Danny, you know, you've been through a hell of an experience here that parallels Oliver's. And even though he says, well, you're an officer, <laughs> you are, were out there. So why don't you talk about it a little, have a little meeting of minds here about the enemy? Well, well sure. I mean, I, I try to be humble in these situations because I didn't much like officers myself. Um, and I clearly was one. And I mean, a West Pointer at that, which carries its own connotations and uh, stereotypes, some of which are true. And there's a lot of sociopaths in their ranks. But, you know, I think uh, it, some of it was contrived, but I made it like a real effort to believe. I, I think I, I started to believe that I was more like my soldiers than the other officers. And some of that was fantasy uh, because I thought like from a class perspective, I had more in common with them. I had a very skeptical view even early on. And, you know, I just, I, I spent, I was, one of the things I always had very good evaluations, but one of the things that I was constantly critiqued for was that I was too close to my soldiers, too close to my soldiers. You can't be close to your soldiers and all this. So, uh, but I will say that the, the idea of the other and the enemy is striking because Oliver, you're talking about Ron Kovic and, one of my soldiers, actually the first seriously wounded soldier on uh, December 14, 2006, was Ty DeJane, who I'm still very close with. He was an E5 sergeant and was shot in the spine. And he is uh, also uh, wheelchair-ridden, and I, you know, we visit each other a few times a year, and it's a mess and all that, of course, involving you know the usual partying and stuff. And uh, but uh, So that was affecting to me because every time I see him, and that was now 14 years ago, it's very real. And so I don't need to tell you about that, but I think we share that notion of this is not the movies. Uh, and if it is the movies in, in your case, and when you choose to present it, it seems that you do have this authenticity relationship and the refusal to sort of uh, sanctify or, you know, play it down in any way. And then finally, and, and this will bring me to, I'll, I'll let you weigh into Bob's question, but this will also bring me to something I want to talk about regarding Salvador and, and also your trilogy is, and I know you saw this too, in Iraq, we walked into a civil war. Well, we created a civil war and then we picked up the pieces. Uh, literally every morning we would pick up the bodies left, you know, uh, tortured and murdered or sometimes beheaded in the soccer fields and we would count them. And, you know, in many ways, that's what turned me against the war more than losing my own soldiers. And so when we talk about exceptionalism, we talk about the way Americans view it, whether it's through their cultural touchstones like film and the Rambo movies and these terrible movies that are made post 9-11 about combat. It strikes me that perhaps your dedication to showing reality, to showing the brutality is often misunderstood by the Pauline Kales of the world or any of the other critics that you mentioned throughout as, you know, misunderstanding it as liking the violence or a fetishization of violence, when in reality, because you hate violence so much, perhaps you're trying to 
demonstrate that through a refusal to, uh, you know, to whitewash it. Has that been an aspect for you throughout? And also, yeah, as I said in the book, it's in me too. There is an aspect of that ugliness is in me. Charlie Sheen comes out of that war in the movie. He's, he says, I'm the stepchild, I'm the, the child of both Barnes and Elias. You take in the poison. You take in the, t- you have to, to survive, I suppose. You can't be an idealist in a war. You're on side. It's a very dirty situation. So I came home a darker strain of myself. And I saw it in myself. And that's what, so when I did these movies, and I let it out. Show it, man. If show it in all its ferocity and let them fucking realize. That was what misunderstood. And thank you for saying that. That's been constant in my fucking life. It's constant. Uh, the last really violent film I did was, uh, was uh, Savages, but, which I tried to make as fucking ugly as possible. But before that was World Trade Center which is interesting because it's violence that is natural for an accident. You see the whole cave in, you see two men trying to survive. These are real men based on real stories. We tried to really stick to the details and their family life and how they were affected by the men in the hole for that amount of time. I think it was 36 hours or something. The violence in that movie is very real. It's close to death. And I, I mean, so people, some, it, the film did very well, and, but it was misunderstood. And it was all, it became, what, about Oliver Stone is suddenly backing the, uh, the, the uh, government point of view or something? It's crap. Uh, it wasn't about that. It was about men surviving under most difficult conditions. I, I, I'm sorry, I went into another thing. I, violence is important to show, very important. And part of the problem that this Black Lives people are having is that people don't realize what it's like when a cop pushes you around and bullies you and scares the shit out of you. Even when you see him, you, you don't have, you, know, you just don't want to talk to a cop because even if it starts under the best of circumstances that we just saw in Atlanta, it can end on the worst because he has control. He has the gun. And if you fucking start to slip up after 10 minutes of conversation, he'll be on your case, man. These guys are bloodhounds. That's what's scary. These guys are overtrained to kill their warriors. They're trained to be us against them. And that's what's wrong about this thing. And that comes from military thinking. Can I just it's interrupt Iraq. for one second, guys, because you're both historians uh, in your filmmaking and your books and so forth. Uh, and there's, again, a conceit here that this is the city on the hill. This is the great experiment. America, we, we don't do evil things. We make mistakes, okay? And, and the reality is this war that your movies are about, Vietnam, had no rhyme or reason, no moral purpose. Uh, you can't even defend it as a good economic thing. It was rank stupidity. Uh, the same with Danny's wars. What the hell were we doing in Afghanistan, Iraq? Uh, it was mindless. It was stupid like this. You know, uh, now he's our hero because he attacks Trump. Uh, but then he said, no, we'll win and we should fight Korea and we should fight everything. Right. I mean, the, the, the heroes now on MSNBC or everything are the same. Let me make another point about Biden, because I think it's interesting to me. Please. Bob wants to talk in the big picture. I'm talking about dramatics. It is so dramatic. This is a 
You ever heard of Greek tragedy? Here's a father. This guy Biden is in such denial of himself, as is Trump. I mean, his son, you, you, you probably know the story, Danny. Of course. He's, of course. he's in Iraq, and he happens to be an officer and all that, and he, he's, his, his, his work is around a waste, a waste pit, they call them, right? Where they, mm-hmm. the, burn, where they pits, burn, burn all pits. that. What? Burn pits, they just call them, yeah. What burn they Burn they pits. call them burn pits, yeah. There's a lot of lawsuits. All right this shit, right? They burn the rubber. They burn everything. Mm-hmm. Batteries, yeah. It's very carcinogenic. I mean, there's chemicals in there. And guess what? The war ends. The kid develops brain cancer. He's a young, healthy man. Brain cancer. And he dies. And, and does Biden know? Does he fucking recognize it? He acts like he doesn't. I mean, yeah, don't, don't you think that's Shakespearean? It is. If I, if I may, I'll not to cut you off, but this is so important what you're mentioning because, well, first of all, whenever I criticize Biden on any level, I'm just shouted down by the liberals. But like when you personalize it and the, the Shakespearean and the Greek aspect of it, one of my uh, fellow anti-war veterans from an organization, I'm part of a Veterans Against the War organization, confronted him about Iraq and asked him about why his foreign policy, you know, is, is kind of to the right of Trump. And Biden said it's on video on YouTube. Biden said to him, because uh, this this friend of mine started like listing the number of soldiers we've lost and how many we've killed over there. And Biden's response, it's really actually worth watching 30 seconds is, well, I lost the son, too. Uh, so uh, I don't I, I don't have to apologize for anything. And my friend was was blown away and was like, no, no, I understand. And I'm not underestimating that grief. But your son did not die directly in a combat. I'm talking about the war that you championed in Iraq. And he just would not engage. And you know how he gets very angry when he's challenged. And it was very striking. It was unbelievable. He went straight to his son, but without understanding what you brought up, of course, which is that the burn pit and all that may have had serious effects. I don't think, okay, it's, but, I think it is. I mean, right. you don't die of brain cancer at a young age. Right. Where I was going with my question is there's a connection. You are both historians, all right? Uh, you're not, Oliver, as familiar with Danny's work as I am because he wrote a, I don't know what, 36 chapters history going back to pre-colonial, you know, the Native American wars and so forth in the United States. And, and he's really quite expert on this and taught this. He taught history at West Point. Okay. And what really is at issue here with Donald Trump? They let him teach history at West Point? They let him? They, they yeah. let me, but luckily they didn't come in my, uh, in my classroom more than once a semester. They gave me a teaching award, Oliver, but if they could have seen what was in my classes, I'm sorry about it, but it, it, it was shocking what I taught. Anyway, Yeah, but your, your superior, a, a colonel who I have had also speak in my classes, uh, supported you. And as did, you I was lucky. pointed out at West Point, there is good teaching and a high yes. standard. Okay, but I want to get to what your history is all about, and it's very similar to what Oliver has been pursuing, which is not the loss of American innocence, but challenging the notion that we were ever such a special people, such a special experiment. And we use that as cover for really often. That's not, we're not the only people who've committed awful acts and some have committed much worse acts, but there is a, a, a persistent notion of American innocence that is really corrosive and it allows us to do anything we want. We have totally messed up the Mideast that you were involved with, uh, and there's no accountability. And your history book and your patriotism book really 
are questioning of why there is no accountability, as just as Oliver's movies were. Well, definitely. And in fact, uh, Oliver's Untold History, which uh, I first watched pretty early on when it, when it came out, is not dissimilar uh, in, a, in a way. I mean, the scope is, you know, temporarily a little uh, shorter, but it's not dissimilar to the project. Uh, nor, you know, and it, I think both probably pulled to some degree from Howard's Inn and, and things like that. But, you know, that I think this does connect also to uh, what Oliver was talking about, you know, involving Black Lives Matter and the cops and the experience of violence in the streets that's more familiar to the black community. Uh, in a visceral sense, it seems that, for example, the indigenous and the black local groups that invited my veterans group to Tulsa uh, are familiar, even if they have, don't have the, you know, scholastic attainment uh, at the university system. They're, they understand what you're describing, this mythology of innocence, this mythology of exceptionalism in a way that I think your average white and especially white middle or upper middle class person does not. Uh, but And I also think this links, and I'll ask about it, to many of Oliver's movies with particular attention to Salvador, which is the inability of Americans to recognize or even have a capacity for empathy for the other, the foreign, the victim of war, the feminine that he, you know, Oliver, that you boldly put in the forefront in, uh, you know, heaven and earth. And then of course, uh, as well as in Salvador. And that strikes me because we are reaching a point in our wars, for example, where, you know, maybe 11 soldiers will die a year now in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia altogether. But, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands are still being killed by American machines, militias and all this. Uh, th this to me is is interesting because you chose to do Salvador. And as you mentioned, you mortgaged basically your entire financial life to do it. Right. And and took this risk in the interest of what at least what I saw and correct me if I'm wrong, was a commitment to demonstrating the effects of decisions made in distant capitals, including Washington, to humanize the victims of these wars and these systems and to not shy away from showing the dark side, whether it's a nun being raped or a soldier's face being blown off and all the criticism you receive for that. But uh, what strikes me is that you chose to do that, knowing that El Salvador was not really in the news anymore. Most Americans didn't care and that we perhaps have this empathy block. So this is tied, Bob, to American exceptionalism, patriotism, sense of our own unique messianic mission. And so I would direct it for Oliver's input by asking with that provocative statement that I will say, is it possible and I think it might be that in some ways, America writ large or many Americans and their leaders are incapable of empathy for the other, whether that be the domestic detritus of empire, the Native Americans in the black communities, or especially Yemeni children or Salvadoran women. Uh, Oliver, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as it relates to your decisions on which projects to pursue. I certainly do have thoughts on it. And I think empathy is a key word. And I think... I ended Untold History, five years of work with a call for empathy, which was unheard. The problem is, it, 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 the problem I think is human nature. Uh, it's true all over the world that you empathize with your own, the people you know around you. So it tends to be, it's a human nature issue. 
uh, Buddhism says a lot about this, but we, you know, it's, so they say the opposite. They say your enemy can be your best friend. Uh, your enemy can teach you. And sometimes your friends can be your worst enemy. Uh, and they have many samples of that. So the, the question is, in our lifetime, are we going to be conscious? Are we going to become more conscious? And this is my particular journey. Maybe it's yours. I think it may be. The only reason we're here is to learn more, to be conscious, to, be, to know who we are, and to learn to be kind uh, and gentle to others. This is a huge lesson. And I think to some degree, America is absorbing it with this Black Lives Matter movement. People are paying attention to the pain of other people from, the, from slavery. It's a big point, and it certainly has a positive effect. But on the other hand, you can see the resistance to it already huge and growing. The, they, they don't defund the police. How can they talk like that? And all that kind of stuff. They miss the point. They, and there's going to be a fight about this. It's going to be that civil war I saw in Platoon all over again. It's Barnes versus Elias. And Barnes will kill Elias if he has to. Mm-hmm. He will. It's not going to get, they're not going to give up. I don't know what it is, but it's a violent streak. It's that lawman streak still. It's the old West. This is not going to go down easy. It's not going to go down easy. I worry, you know, these next four or five months could be really ugly. But uh, there's good people and they're learning and, but it's a hard game we're, we're into because these people are resisting. Uh, they don't want to think about empathy. Well, certainly the, this pivotal moment, and I think it does tie to your interest in the war on drugs and your decisions to even controversially bring that up at the Golden Globes in, I think, 78. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you've, you've been on the forefront of this uh, on an, a number of levels when it was unpopular, but you brought up Black Lives Matter and the protests, and, and it also links to Bob's broader point of, you know, this police violence and this civil war at home. Uh, this is not about me. I'm a small member of a broader movement trying to accompany the violent response to the police in these communities is such that when we were down in Tulsa, my anti-war veterans group, we sent 12 folks. I wrote about it today on Bob's uh, site. We were invited by the local black community to protect their Juneteenth celebrations. They asked us to provide security training and sort of be security. And that was, of course, ridiculous in a number of ways because we don't we won't we don't carry weapons. And, you know, there's only 12 of us, but it shows this palpable fear in the community. And I think if there's a benefit to the number of uh, white people in the streets right now, it's uh, at an anecdotal level, what I've seen in Kansas City in the streets every day is, you know, I watched us get tear gassed and rubber bulleted in a park. You know, we were peaceful. And I watched people pick up strangers, kids, children and run them away from the tear gas. And, you know, the experience of the cops brutally taking us down when we dared touch their flagpoles uh, two days ago and throw us, you know, some of my friends were thrown on the ground and it was very, very vicious. And then also petty in the sense that uh, one of the Native American women who was arrested on my, who I boosted on my poll, when they, when she gathered her gear, they had put a Washington Redskins hat in her bag. And uh, so why do I bring all that up? I, I think it relates to what you're saying about this pivotal moment, the experience of violence and the fear of the police, which is becoming realer for me than it has ever been and has been there forever for other folks. But this civil war within America, the empire comes home is something I write about. And it seems that you described that very well about the post-Vietnam generation 
And then sometimes there's a delay, but it seems that the empire in the form of militarized police and all this, it's home today, right? Are you, I imagine you're seeing the same thing. I imagine I'm seeing this. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, was it, is the revolution going to be in my lifetime? It's going to be bloody. And America, and other, uh, Bob's question is a good one. I mean, does America have to bleed like a civil war in order to learn? The biggest problem in the civil war, Lincoln got killed. Okay, Lincoln was a better, could have been a march, much, uh, what it was the right leader maybe to lead us out of it. But Andrew Johnson was not up to that. And, you know, this horrible thing set in where uh, the South never gave up. And we see it constantly. I'm sorry to say it in our politics today. Much of the legislation, the obstruction to most of the progressive thing is still from the South. The South, remember Jesse Helms, Strom Thurmond, going way back. Oh, Lyndon Johnson is a George Bush. These two presidents got us into horrible wars. Lyndon Johnson, because he couldn't back down. His dick had to be bigger than uh, the other guy's dick. And I, I can't forgive him for that. He was a Southerner. You know, there's something about it. I sometimes think that Lincoln made a mistake and should have let the South go because I, I think slavery would have ended naturally over maybe a few years more. But if they had been, and we cut off and become like a Canada, more Northern, more, less uh, caveman race, <laughs> I think that the North would have had a whole different situation and we'd be in a whole different world today. Now, you, that's pretty radical what I said, but think about it. Well, well sure. He's not done us any favors from naming all those forts after confed idiot confederate yes. generals. Oh, God, I used to look at... Uh, I'm sorry. I, I really... Uh, it's so frustrating to see. In other words, if you win a war, at least you should make sure that they play by the new rules, and they, and they didn't. Right. Well, it seems like the North won the battles and then the South ended up winning the war culturally and politically up to this day. And they still affect our culture today. They, they've killed off so much uh, good legislation and, are, and also have created wars. Yeah, and, and if you look throughout American history, even before the Civil War, uh, every single American expansionist war found most of its support in the South. And today, when we get rid of the draft, uh, this, the military, the all-volunteer, right, volunteer in quotes, military is more skewed towards southern and rural than it has ever been. Yeah. And this has been extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, so much so that at West Point, when I taught there, I used to leave the Lee housing area, drive on Lee Road, past Lee barracks to my office. And uh, the soldiers from the south, in my experience, and some were wonderful and all this, but overall, the ones that I had to keep an eye on, the ones that were most likely to get angry, out of control, and treat the other poorly, and even commit war crimes, invariably were skewed towards the Deep South. I know. I agree with you. That's the problem. Bob, what do you have to say? Well, I just want to uh, sort of tie this all up because, and it's trite to say the more things change, the more they are the same. Uh, but that's the value of history, to see what are, are the patterns. And I can't get over the statistic. We are so, the 4% or whatever, 4.5%, we are so important to the human experience, whether for better or worse. I mean, this, it, it just wipes out all the oxygen and the, the, the planet, you know, uh, what America does. And so now, 
I want to end this with a consideration of what Trump represents, because this is the caricature that lets everyone else off the hook. You know, uh, he, he's ill-mannered. He's crude. He lets us in on how grotesque it is. But what he's letting us in on was already the norm. It was just being concealed. And he's stupid enough to, to say the wrong thing at the party, to fart at the party is really what Trump does, you know, uh, where you're supposed to keep it hidden. But your war, Oliver, was fought by Democrats, created by Democrats, constructed by Democrats, lied about by Democrats. Okay, Danny's wait war. Wait, wait a was, second, I don't quite agree with that. You know my position on John Kennedy and I have the facts as to what Kennedy did. He was pulling out of Vietnam. Okay, but uh, after he, Kennedy. And certainly, started yeah. that. Eisenhower supported the French and did yeah. the... Okay, I'm, I wasn't making a partisan remark. I'm just trying to show that it's bipartisan. And you're absolutely right. Now, Danny's wars were fought... Uh, created by moderate Republicans. It wasn't Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump actually has the temerity, George, George W. Bush, who you went to Yale with. Wasn't he your classmate yeah, at Yale? He was, he, he's an example of a, a degenerate uh, gene in our culture. That is right. But, but, love of war, uh, love of uh, phoniness. Okay. But when people now are thinking about the good old days before Trump, Oh, they're thinking of George W. Bush and they're oh, thinking of Linda. Right. Harry Truman. Your movie exposes the cynicism of yeah. Harry Truman and dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and everything else. Now, in this election, it's not just the le lesser evil that we're asked to defend, but we're seen as this is a battle between virtue, right, and evil. And so like in the last election, when Donald Trump stupidly said he'll make America great, you know, like, wow, what do we mean by great? Hillary Clinton said it's always been great. <laughs> that, so where do you debate? Exactly. Uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. I voted for Jill Stein, third party. How can you support uh, two interventionists? Well, you, how can you support the Democrats now? How? They are so, war, they're hawks, war hawks. They were asking Trump to bomb Syria, to go into a Syrian war. It's ugly, Bob. It's so ugly. We're so lost. We're so lo Our moral compass is gone. It's flipped out. And George W. Bush, I can't disagree with you, has a much to do with it. I think he is the uh, linchpin on which a lot of this new century turns. That 2000 election was stolen. I, was, I watched that night. I knew we were in for something. And then 2001, my God, everything changed. So in my book, George W. Bush has a lot to, more to pay for right now. Donald so Trump. Finally, so finally, let me, let me ask you about the importance of manners. Let me ask both of you, because clearly, I mean, Trump is, you know, I think Trump is a neo-fascist in the sense that he's playing the chauvinist card and, you know, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-people of color. Well, I mean, it's the scapegoating that we associate, and yet he's really carrying water for the super rich and getting the trade deals that benefit them and demonizing anyone in the world who challenges that. But the fact of the matter is most of the discussion is that movies challenge that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, and the, the, the whole thing of who is really violent 
you know, uh, natural born killers? Is it the media that really wants more of this violence so they can get ratings? Yes. They're totally cynical, right? Yes. Uh, you know, a very, I think, very much misunderstood movie, by the way. U-Turn had a lot of that feeling examination that manners can conceive, you know, this is the banality of evil that Hannah Arendt talked about. The yes. Germans actually had manners. They could quote Goethe, you know, they, they, right? The Germans were well, they were well educated. They kept good records, uh, you know, and so forth. Uh, and What are you getting at, though? I'm getting at that manners is a disguise. It's a cover. Yeah. And, and uh, you keep up an air of civility. And this boob comes along and he's, he's the bully, created by mass media, honored by mass media because he was a bully. You know, uh, and yet he takes it to over rallying the South that you have described in this, you know, jingoistic view of American innocence and virtue and so forth. But really on the fundamentals of what are we doing in the world and how are we using resources and do we care about human rights? You know, you're hard put to find such a clear difference. You know, that, that's well, the, uh, the tragedy here. I mean, there's no, okay, let's end with this. Where your movies and his writing, where, where are you, Major Danny, are attempts to hold us accountable for our apathy, our indifference. We send people like you and Danny to war. We all do. We pay the taxes. Uh, most people didn't protest. Most people think it's just honky-dory, right? And you guys witness evil in, by your own side. Okay, there's other evil in the world, but you witnessed it, both of you, right? You witnessed innocent people having their lives totally disrupted, who didn't even know where the hell we were coming from. <laughs> who are these people? Really, isn't that, what isn't that the common well, experience you had, whether it's Iraq or Vietnam, Major Danny? Yeah, well, so, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. And then because we're, you know, this is sort of our culmination for today, I'll pivoted towards, uh, I think, an important closing question for Oliver that's related. So, yes, I think that manners is problematic. I think making things only about character is problematic. Uh, at the same time, I do find Trump abhorrent on just about every level and, of course, think there are unique aspects to his uh, domestic scapegoating or at least the uh, overtness of it. Uh, however, I agree, I agree with you, Oliver. I think that George W. Bush, you said that you can't forgive Lyndon Johnson. I think for my generation, I can't forgive George W. Bush. And so I think that that's a, a valid point. But so is your point, and it relates to Bob's, about how can one vote for the Democrats now? How can one support the DNC flavor of Democrat? And it is interesting, as we talked earlier, how the pejoratives will be flung if you vote for Jill Stein, right, like Oliver did, or if you... Uh, question, like I do somewhat regularly, Biden's record, all factual. No one ever disputes me on the facts. Uh, I'm regularly, and this will certainly, I imagine, resonate with Oliver, I'm regularly referred to as a Russian asset or a useful idiot or a Putin stooge. And that's the go-to. And it's not new. It was used. It's McCarthyism brought to bear by you know the uh, polite corporate media. So yes, I think this is important. But I keep in mind the, the real victims of these wars and not to make them into a platitude because it is true that for a Yemeni child, uh, the manners of Barack Obama didn't matter a whole lot, did they? 
the reality, you know, war may have been abstract for the suburbs of Northern Virginia, but they were not in, you know, Northwest Yemen. And so, of course, there are limits to manners and policy has to matter. Uh, you mentioned, however, as I close here, that uh, Oliver and I both served. We're sort of the, we, we ended up on the tip of the spear, so to speak. And most Americans don't like to look at that or realize their own complicity in it, right, just by paying their taxes or that this is done in their name, uh, ostensibly. So that brings up questions about the role of the, the veteran or the person who decides to dissent after seeing what we saw. And I mean, Oliver has made a career of it in many ways and in an artistic way that I can't uh, imagine in a certain sense. I mean, there's a beauty in the art rather than the nonfiction. So Oliver, it's very much quoted, but you said that you got a lot of letters after Platoon about that last monologue or that last almost soliloquy on the helicopter on the way out and that a lot of people would stay in the theater crying and uh, and I and I did many times in my life. And last week, when I told my son that I was involved with you, uh, uh, he suddenly got interested and thought I was cool. And we watched Platoon together, and then a few others since then. And he's 11, and he's named after three of my soldiers who died in Iraq. And and he liked the movie, and he saw me get emotional at several parts, including that one. And then for Father's Day, he made me a card with Elias's death scene on it because I told him it was my favorite scene and nevertheless the soliloquy of course as you know uh, those of us who did make it have uh, an obligation to teach to others what we know and to you know uh, use with what's left of our lives to find the goodness and meaning in this life so I guess my question is and of course you can answer Bob's broader one how, how do you how do you define and has it changed over the years you know both that obligation to teach to others and how one finds that sense of good in the world and peace. And, and, you know, now it's been 50 years since Vietnam. Have you seen changes in how you view that or define those terms so eloquently laid out? Do you remember the scene in the book uh, when I'm come back and I'm at NYU in the class with Professor Leahy, Tim Leahy, who's yelling at the class, about, yes. He's talking about Odysseus, and he draw, he on the blackboard, he draws consciousness, the word consciousness. And he says, well, you know, what is it? What is, what is the difference? Why does Odysseus survive, and why does his crew not? Why is he the only one who comes back? Consciousness, people, consciousness. He points out again and again in detail where Homer points to this man who's special because he is, he, he's listening, he's watching, he's hearing, he puts he puts the wax in his ear. He he doesn't put the wax in his ears. Ties the sirens because he wants to hear what they have. But he he ties himself to the mast. They the crew does in order to keep him restrained because otherwise you'll jump overboard and jump, try to join the sirens. It's a very telling tale, and it's what it's what it's the obstacle, the challenge we all face as individuals. We all have that temptation. We want to hear the siren call for war, whatever it is. And uh, at the same time, we have to resist that call. We have to be very strong in ourselves, not to fight back, not to be angry, not to look for a revenge, not to look for an enemy. It's very important. And I think without it, uh, there's no restraint on the human animal in us. So the goodness and meaning to me is very much about consciousness. It's about getting your consciousness to find, that is the meaning of life in my mind. Well, on that note, and for this session, maybe we'll have 
other sessions and follow this if you guys are willing. Uh, but I want to recommend Oliver Stone's book is coming out in a couple. Well, actually, when this is shown, maybe in a matter of days, it's called Chasing the Light, uh, Writing, Directing and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador and the Movie Game. I, I tell you, it's a joy to read. Uh, I read it in a single uh, sitting, actually lying in bed, uh, and everybody knows Oliver's a great screenwriter, but this is really a beautifully written book. It's a coming-of-age book, and it's really a great story about how mass media, particularly Hollywood, works in America and its relation to the issues. So thank you, Oliver. The other book and the other author we have here is Daniel Scherzen. Uh, the book is Patriotic Descent. See, Oliver, I can hold one up also. And this is coming out, I think, in about a month. Uh, Danny, Major uh, Danny? September, September 8th, actually. Yeah, September, September 8th. And again, Patriotic Descent. And I didn't give the publishers, Oflin, uh, Mifflin, and Harcourt for Oliver's book and uh, Heyday uh, for Danny Shorzen. There are still books. And now when you're uh, sheltering in space, it's a good time to read it. That's it for this edition of uh, Share Intelligence. Uh, Christopher Ho at KCRW, the NPR station is our engineer there. Natasha Hakimi Sapata writes the introductions. And Joshua Shear puts the program together and is the producer in charge. See you next week uh, with another edition of Share Intelligence. But I hasten to say uh, that these podcasts would not be possible were it not for a grant uh, from the JWK Foundation in, in honor of Gene Stein, the late Gene Stein, who was a terrific writer and journalist and was very instrumental uh, in supporting the civil rights movement and opposing the Vietnam War. So on that note, uh, that's it for this edition. See you next week. <laughs>